than we had seen before. Um, well, Simona Chern of PBS Frontline. Others, let's put it that way. Lies politics and democracy. And uh, the reaction uh, of Republicans at that point should have been uh, unanimous. The leadership should have rallied around and said, it's over. Uh, we accept the verdict of the people, you know, all of those kinds of traditional uh, norms that, that have been with us forever. Um, and instead, um, important voices like Mitch McConnell, for example, said that the president should be allowed to exhaust all of his uh, legal remedies. Um, and uh, many others uh, joined the same sort of thing. Some actually joined in questioning the outcome of the election. Uh, but most uh, basically went along with Trump. And I think the iconic quotation of the era was um, somebody told uh, the New York Times or the Washington Post that uh, what harm is there in indulging him? Yeah, this is an anonymous quote uh, from a leading Republican. What harm is there in indulging him? And then we found out. Don Jr. tweeting, where are the 2024 contenders? And by the end of the week, Ted Cruz, Lindsey Graham go out. How important is that period of time? How important was it that there were Republican senators who were willing to go out and to amplify questions about the election? You cannot overstate the importance um, of those voices. It is, you know, it's reminiscent of the period in 2016 when uh, Trump was clearly the most popular primary candidate for a while, um, but it was a very large field and it took the imprimatur of people like Chris Christie, who had been a two-term governor of a major state, and, uh, and people uh, like Senator Jeff Sessions, um, who uh, gave their authority, lent their, their prestige and authority to Trump. And that was a signal to people, uh, to, to voters, that it was okay. And uh, it was a permission structure. And so that's what happened after in those days after the 2020 election, too? Sure. When you had Ted Cruz and Tom Cotton and others also questioning the outcome, um, it looked less like um, a, uh, a cranky or, or um, petulant reaction from Trump and more like there were legitimate questions to be asked. All these people are asking questions. <laughs> One of Trump's favorite sayings is people are saying uh, in this case, his people were saying it. So let's now go back to 2016, because a lot of those same characters are involved in that. There's Ted Cruz and Lindsey Graham, and we'll talk about both of them. But one place we've been thinking about starting is the Iowa caucuses, where Ted Cruz wins, and Donald Trump is, even all back then, talking about the election having been rigged. Can you help us understand that moment in the Iowa yep. caucus and what a Ted Cruz would have seen what he was up against and what the state of play was at that moment? This, this could, have been, um, could have been an epical moment, right? Because Trump, a big part of his brand was that he was not going to lose, that, that he was a winner. And uh, he did lose Iowa. Um, and, uh, and he immediately said it was rigged. And of course, if you look at Donald Trump's history, whenever he doesn't get something that he wants, he denounces it as being fixed. So he did that when he didn't win any awards. I mean, he did it, you know, throughout his life. It's always the same story. 
um, that uh, that the game is rigged if he does anything but win. And uh, and so you know he uh, he he trotted that out in Iowa, but that's been memory hold. People don't remember uh, that he accused the Republican caucus in Iowa of being rigged against him uh, because he lost. And then miraculously, the uh, Republican primary in New Hampshire was somehow unrigged. And if we were paying attention at the time, if we were watching the history from NAMI Awards to what he had been saying in the run-up, what should we have noticed in that moment? We should have noticed that this man has a disordered personality and that he has certain fixed ideas about the way the world works. Um, and that he is perhaps the most solipsistic individual that we've ever seen on the national stage in American history. Um, but for some reason, uh, he was popular with the voters and, or with a subset of voters. And uh, at key junctures, Republican officials who knew better decided to humor him or humor them, humor the voters who liked him, uh, rather than confront him. And uh, to be fair, some who did confront him did not live to tell the tale politically. And how would you describe Ted Cruz at that moment and who he was? Because we're going to follow his trajectory, but he was appealing to evangelicals. He'd been a solicitor general and a lawyer and a constitutional conservative. Who was the Ted Cruz of 2016? So the Ted Cruz of 2016 was a candidate who believed he had his fingers on the pulse of the Republican base voter. He thought that the idea was to out-conservative every other potential candidate and to show that he was the truest, bluest conservative. Um, the way he attempted to sideline Marco Rubio, for example, was by suggesting that Rubio was weak on illegal immigration, uh, which later morphed into just weak on immigration, period. But at the time, they were still saying that they were only opposed to illegal immigration. Um, and so that was Cruz's insight, was that you had to be the most conservative candidate. And he also um, uh, sort of styled himself a constitutional conservative. He, he advertised the fact that he had memorized the entire Constitution and could recite it from memory. Um, and so he thought that was uh, the way to the hearts of voters. Um, when he saw the appeal of Donald Trump, he made the calculation that he just had to, um, you know, swim along in, in Trump's wake until Trump self-destructed. And then uh, having never criticized Trump, he would inherit all of Trump's voters. And that was the bargain. One of the other ones in that period that's quite striking when you go back and look at what he was saying is Lindsey Graham. What was Lindsey Graham's role? And I mean, and was he articulating some of the same concerns that you were articulating at that time? Lindsey Graham was concerned about Trump's unfitness for office and did mention it, um, as pretty much everybody did at some stage of the game. It's just a question of when they stopped saying it, uh, as almost all did. Um, but in 2016, Graham was running as the um, neocon or the or the um, you know tough on uh, national defense candidate. Um, that that he 
either, you know, genuinely believed uh, was a lane that could lead to success, or he just felt that that part of the party needed a voice and, and he was going to uh, elevate his profile. That was his gambit. Um, and uh, at the time, Graham was, um, he was amusing. He had some exchanges with Trump that were, that were kind of funny uh, regarding his cell phone and I don't remember all the details now. I think Trump revealed his, what was that? That's right. Yeah, he, he revealed his cell phone number. Graham made it into a meme or something and, you know, hit it with, with a golf club or something. I, I don't know. But, uh, you know, all in good fun, I guess. But, um, but that, was, um, that was Graham. And Graham was known for being forthright and, uh, and telling the truth. I do remember him saying that Trump was... Uh, was completely ill-suited and unfit to be president. And uh, then he, of course, became a, an obedient poodle later. <laughs> and when you were talking, presumably, to Republicans and to Republican leaders and to Republicans in the establishment, did they have concerns about what we would see after January 6th? Were they worried he was going to lose or were they worried that he was a real threat to the institutions? What was the feeling inside the party at that point? I would draw a huge distinction between 2016 and 2020. Um, in 2016, I mean, there were countless Republicans who were very, very nervous about uh, what a Trump presidency would mean for the country and for the party. Um, it turned out they cared a lot more about the party than they did about the country, but uh, there was a lot of concern. By 2020, many of them were perfectly okay um, with a, a second Trump term. Uh, and if you raised these matters of his unfitness, they would say, oh, you know, that's true. I, we don't like his manners either, as if it were only a matter of manners. Um, but, uh, but the left has gone crazy, they would say. And so this is, he's the only horse we can ride. There was a description of Trump at the time, 2016, that he was unconventional, that he was a rule breaker, an entertainer. But there was also other things. There was violence at the rallies, which he seemed to encourage. There was uh, talk about governments and institutions. Can you describe what he was offering? And did people misunderstand Trump when they were describing him, when, when they were looking at what he was doing and this, you know, this showman he was often described as? So one of the things that amazed me as somebody who had been a conservative for decades uh, was the willingness of so-called conservatives to embrace someone whose themes were the opposite of conservatism. It was burn it all down, which is uh, about the least conservative sentiment you can possibly have. I mean, conservatives are usually about organic, gradual change, if they're even for change at all. Um, and uh, so, so that was one. Another theme that they were apparently comfortable with was I alone can fix it. Uh, that, again, utterly, utterly antithetical to the conservative view that you don't put all the power into the hands of one person, that uh, you have to have checks and balances, that you have to be wary of power, especially concentrated power. And, uh, and so... For those reasons, among many others, it was just head spinning to watch conservatives say, uh, to, to watch them accept all of this and then 
dismiss objections as merely a manner of a matter of style, you know, or or that he was uncouth or so on. Uh, whereas, you know, no, they were substantive problems going to the heart of what conservatism was about. Why do you think they rejected them, or they saw it as as a question of style? It's a very hard question to answer. Um, either they never really believed in the things they said they believed, or they persuaded themselves that it was really true that if Democrats took power, it would be, as as one person famously put it in 2016, the Flight 93 election. That it would be the end of democracy as we have known it, and uh, I suppose we would all um, be wearing little Mao uniforms and have to go to camps uh, if Hillary Clinton were elected. A lot of people say about Donald Trump that he's not ideological or he's ideologically flexible and he's not a conservative or a liberal and he doesn't have the strong views. When, when you go back and look at the speech you just mentioned, the I alone can fix this, I mean, was he offering something? Was he offering himself as a strong man? Was he offering something that was unusual in American politics? Oh, throughout the 2016 campaign, he gave many, many signals of authoritarian tendencies. Uh, there was the I alone can fix it comment. Uh, there was the remark made in a debate that he would order the military to commit war crimes. And when it was objected that this is illegal, he said, don't worry, they'll, they'll obey me. Uh, and um, again, this got very little pushback from Republicans. Um, he suggested that he would limit the freedom of the press. Um, you know, a lot of this was he was talking through his hat, but nevertheless, it was uh, the sort of thing that, that should have received <laughs> a very, very stern rebuke, nothing. Um, it, you know, there were, there were just many examples of him being willing to, um, oh, just the very suggestion that he would use the Justice Department to uh, prosecute his political opponents. Just the bedrock principle of our democratic republic that we don't do that. And that once you head down that path, uh, you're getting into banana republic territory. So there were many, many signals throughout 2016 that this was not just a showman, uh, not just somebody who um, who was uh, an entertainer, but no, somebody who had definite authoritarian sympathies. And by the way, even going back further, previous to his candidacy, uh, he had made statements uh, regarding, for example, what happened in Tiananmen Square, where he basically praised the communist authoritarian government in China for its crackdown. Um, he, he said at first it seemed that they might not be able to handle it, but then they handled it with strength. His constant um, invocations of strength as opposed to, um, as opposed to democratic values, as opposed to persuasion, as opposed to winning legitimate victories, um, that's, that has a vaguely fascistic smell to it. Let me ask you, when you are seeing these things that you're describing now, you're seeing them in real time, you're writing about them in real time in 2016. Is it frustrating as a conservative trying to sound an alarm? What is that like? It was vertigo inducing uh, because it showed me that either I had gone crazy or everybody else had gone crazy. I didn't know what world I was living in. It felt really Alice in Wonderland-esque. Um, 
the, the things I thought were solid were not. And uh, it was very disorienting. Of course, there's the comments about Ted Cruz's wife. There's the conspiracy theory about his dad. There's calling him, you know, lying Ted. Can you describe what Ted Cruz would have seen, experienced firsthand about who Donald Trump was? At some point in the primary season when Cruz recognized that he was not going to be able to defeat Trump, um, he went out to the cameras and he, and he said, if you want to know what I really think of him, I'm going to tell you. And he was about as blunt as he could be, that he was a pathological liar. Uh, and, uh, and, and he said a number of other choice words about him. So we know at that moment the mask slipped and he was honest um, about Trump. But Ted Cruz is incredibly flexible and he has it seems to me, one lodestar, and that's his own ambition, to which he's willing to sacrifice pretty much every other principle. The greatest betrayal of all is not even so much about Republican principles, about I thought we were for small government or I thought we were for, you know, pluralism. Uh, the greatest betrayal on the part of Republican leaders was the betrayal of truth itself, because Without, uh, without a common set of facts and a common understanding of what we're dealing with, self-government becomes very difficult, if not impossible. And Cruz and Cotton and even prestigious publications like the Wall Street Journal editorial board, which prided itself on its occasional criticisms of Trump, nevertheless failed to draw a bright line and say, this level of deception is corrupting our country. It is corroding people's confidence in the electoral process and in democracy itself. And as such, it represents a profound threat. And they never did that. Uh, well, they did it only in the case of the journal. They did it episodically. In the case of many, many conservative and Republican uh, elected officials, they hardly did it at all which meant they lent their prestige and their authority to it. And in so doing, um, they, they really betrayed the country. And do you think that was, was that happening in 2016? Or yes. is that something that plays out over the... Oh, no, it was happening in 2016. It was happening with the early endorsers like Sessions and, uh, and Christie. Uh, and then it was happening uh, when one after another... Uh, leading Republicans got in line and, um, you know, right through the convention, I mean, Reince Priebus, the uh, leader at the time of the Republican Party, uh, the RNC, uh, he also, you know, failed to, um, to make a point of it. So, so the, the, the collapse was pretty well total. And how important was Mike Pence? In that, in, Critical. in Trump eventually becoming yep. president. Because, again, Mike Pence, all right, so unlike Lindsey Graham or, or Ted Cruz, who had um, different um, uh, parts of the base that they were appealing to, so Ted Cruz was kind of the legal eagle, Federalist Society, uh, lawyer, conservative, and uh, Lindsey Graham was the foreign policy hawk, Mike Pence's claim to fame was entirely the evangelical Christian vote. And it was to um, nail down the support of that constituency that Trump chose him as vice president. And Mike Pence was known to be a Boy Scout. That was what he brought 
and he was thought of as being a sincere Christian man who um, had a, a, an ethical compass. For him, in particular, to take that compass and lay it at the feet of, of Donald Trump and bend the knee was just, I, you cannot overstate the importance of that. It was about the most invertebrate action he could have taken, but uh, he, he did that. I mean, it's interesting because what you're saying is, yes, the voters in the primaries are electing Trump and they're pushing him towards the nomination, but that the, the leadership of the party still had a choice as late as the summer of 2016. They always had choices. And by the way, let's not forget that in 2016, um, Trump was getting a plurality maximum of the vote. But the Republican primaries were structured so that they had a winner-take-all system. And when you have 15, 16 candidates, somebody with who only gets 27% of the vote can win the maximum, you know, can, can take it all, which was what was happening in the early contests. Um, and the party had innumerable opportunities. First of all, there could have been some cooperation among the other candidates, the kind of thing, frankly, that the Democrats did in 2020 when several candidates dropped out and threw their support to Biden because they decided that he had the best chance to win and that they were going to cooperate as, and do what was best for the party, not just for themselves. Um, that could have happened in the Republican race in 2016, and it never did. Um, so there, there were many, many opportunities uh, to recognize the danger. Um, I remember when um, Scott Walker uh, left the race and, uh, and, and made a, a statement saying that the party had to block Trump somehow. Uh, otherwise, he, he was going to walk away with it, and, uh, and he was ignored. Um, and uh, in, a, in a move that was very early, but that came to be so emblematic of the way many, many Republicans handled this, the governor of Maine gathered together a group of Republicans to hold an emergency meeting about how best to thwart Trump. And within about a week, he had flipped. He personally had become pro-Trump. Just and that was that turned out to be the model for most Republican leaders. It's amazing. I just one quick thing I wanted to ask you about was that moment with Ted Cruz where he goes to the convention and he says, you know, vote your conscience. Was that a turning point for him and for the party when you watched that happen? As as I recall, the turning point was not when he was booed on the floor of the convention, but when he then went and addressed the Texas delegation next morning and, uh, and, and received an earful from them. And I think at that moment he realized his own political career was going to be sunk if he didn't get on the train. And so it was for him a simple, simple decision. You know, the fact that these people who, who talk such a good game about, you know, their principles and the fact that they are unwilling to sacrifice the smallest thing for the sake of their principles, like holding office. I mean, it isn't as if someone like Ted Cruz would be on the street if he weren't collecting his uh, senatorial salary. You know, he he could get a job as a lawyer. He could uh, he, he could have a very nice life. But for so many of these people, they're not willing to make the smallest um, sacrifice uh, for the sake of their country. Honestly.
one of the groups that is voicing concern are the Democrats and the Hillary Clinton campaign and that they see danger in Trump. And she does give a speech. And there's, of course, the famous deplorables comment. Did the Democrats, did Hillary Clinton, did they know how to respond effectively to Donald Trump, to what they thought he represented? So the Democrats, um, first of all, um, were a little bit complicit in seeing Trump get the Republican nomination. They were hoping for it, cheering for it, because they thought he'd be so easily defeated. And um, so that's one lesson is that, you know, you, you should never let your partisanship take you to a place where you openly cheer for an anti-democratic authoritarian to be the nominee of one of the two major parties because you think it'll give you a partisan advantage. Okay, Maybe they've learned that lesson. I don't know. Um, so that was one thing. The other thing was that, that members of the press, um, you know, CNN and others, saw Trump as a great moneymaker because he meant, he meant eyeballs. And so they featured him endlessly uh, during the primaries. There would, you know, there would be um, a camera on an empty podium waiting for Trump uh, when he was doing his uh, his rallies and so forth. Uh, he got disproportionate uh, coverage from the press uh, again for their own reasons, um, for their own selfish reasons. So that was um, that was. Not ideal. Um, and then for good, some good reasons and some bad reasons, Hillary Clinton was demonized. Uh, I mean, it's never good to demonize anyone, but I mean, she, she had s severe weaknesses as a candidate. Um, and then when you, and then you have to layer on top of that, that she was also the victim of a lot of demonization. And so, um, I don't think that she handled it very well. My personal opinion is that she would have been better off taking more advice from her husband, Bill Clinton, who uh, was the last Democrat. I mean, Barack Obama did very well because he brought out such overwhelming numbers of um, of African-American and people of color uh, voters. But um, Bill Clinton was really the last Democrat who understood how to appeal to the white non-college educated voters. And unfortunately, um, Mrs. Clinton didn't didn't take his advice on where to campaign and uh, I think wound up losing narrowly in places like Wisconsin and Michigan that she could have won. And with, with comment like the, the plurals, I mean, we're both sides feeding an us versus them polarization. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, it, we currently live in an era when the whole idea of coalition building is pretty much discredited, and it shouldn't be. But the fact is, both parties, rather than trying to expand their coalition and, and reach out to voters who are in the middle, um, have been doubling down on their own extremes and thinking, well, it's all about turnout, and we just have to get our people out, and if we do that, we get it all. And... Um, and they are both, um, first of all, they're missing opportunities um, that are out there. I mean, I think the Biden's victory, for example, shows that there were a lot of middle of the road uh, voters, even significant numbers of Republicans who were willing to vote for a Democrat um, and give him a chance. But when the parties, as they so frequently both do, um, play to their own extremes, it further polarizes the country and hurts the parties themselves.
Trump comes in in 2017, first joint address, and they say, is he going to be presidential? And the Republicans are sitting there. Um, one of them is Mitch McConnell, who we're interested in. And what do they think that they have in Trump? What do they think they can do with them? How dangerous do they think they is? How much of a benefit to them? How did they understand the deal with this president that was coming in at that early stage of the presidency? Well, I, it depends on who you're talking about. I think in the case of some, it was um, every minute of every day amounted to looking nervously at their phones to see what was the latest outrage and what they were going to have to avoid the press in the halls of Congress about, saying, I didn't see it, I, I don't know anything about it. That was the case with many elected Republicans. Um, there were others who um, thought colleague of mine calls this the Franz von Papen uh, strategy, who was the German uh, uh, official who thought that Hitler could be handled, right? That, yeah, you know, he's popular. We, we'll handle him. Well, similarly, some, some uh, Republicans thought, all right, you know, Trump is in the presidency. He can, you know, tweet and get on TV. We'll do the work and we'll send him things and he'll sign them. And that was the initial very optimistic outlook um, from people. I, I, I'm not going to put words in anybody's mouth, but I do think the leadership thought slash hoped that that would be the way things rolled out. And for Mitch McConnell, what do you think he was hoping for out of a Trump presidency? Judges, uh, above all, judges. He was willing to do pretty much whatever he needed to do to get more judges confirmed, especially Supreme Court justices, as we saw with his uh, declining to fill the seat uh, that uh, was vacated, that, well, it became open because of the death of Scalia. And he's pretty well known, and certainly after January 6th, that he had his concerns about Trump and that he was not a huge fan of him. But what does Trump get out of him during those years? What does he do to enable the Trump presidency? Well, to the degree that there was anything accomplished in the Trump years, it was uh, due to uh, Republican spade work that had been done before Trump ever got there, for example, on the tax cut um, bill uh, that was after Trump finished screwing around with it and, and, and blowing it, they managed to get passed. So that was, that was one thing. To the degree that Trump involved himself in legislation, he tended to sabotage it. So, for example, the Republicans had been promising and, and running on repealing and replacing Obamacare for 11 years or whatever it was, and um, they might have been able to do it, except that Trump kept bigfooting the, the process and, um, and, and screwing things up when there was an actual opportunity to really get some kind of reform. And uh, he kept switching the guidelines. He kept changing his mind about what he would accept or not accept. And uh, it made doing business in the usual way impossible. Um, there was even a point when the Republicans were in charge of the presidency, the Senate, and the House when there was actual, there were warnings of a government shutdown fight, uh, which is um, preposterous, but that was the, the state of things. But for McConnell, who believes, I guess, that power justifies everything, um, the important thing was that it was a Republican, you know, somebody with an R after his name, and however distasteful McConnell may have found it, um, it meant that 
Republicans were in charge of nominating and confirming judges, which was his highest priority. So Lindsey Graham maintains his opposition to Trump all the way through the election, does not vote for him. But by the first year of Donald Trump's presidency, says, I'm all in on the Donald Trump presidency and becomes the self-styled, self-described Trump whisperer. When you see that transformation, what does that tell you about him? How important is that? I don't want to engage in armchair psychoanalysis, um, but um, the interpretation that Lindsey Graham is the kind of person who is made to be second banana does present itself, um, that that's where, that's the role in which he is most comfortable. Um, He did that for many years with John McCain, and then I guess decided that that he could, he could sort of slip into that remora fish role uh, with the next big whale who came along, namely Donald Trump. And, uh, but other than that, I don't have an explanation except that, as with so many Republicans and conservatives in the wider intellectual world who made their peace with Trump, it was simply fear of missing out. It was the sense that, look, this is what it is. I'm either going to be part of it and have at least some influence. And I know what they would tell themselves because they would explain it to you. They would say, um, look, I, I know this is not ideal, but wouldn't you rather have him hearing from me than hearing from Marjorie Taylor Greene or, you know, Jason Miller or whatever? So that there was always someone worse who was the false alternative that they would present and say, so therefore... I have to do this, always forgetting that or not addressing the problem that every time a major figure did that, they lent him their credibility and they squandered it. What warnings were there, especially looking back from knowing what would happen in January 6th, what warnings were there in how Trump responded to Charlottesville? So some of the parallels are pretty exact in the sense that you had um, staff members putting words in front of Trump and telling him, this is what you have to say to be a credible president in these circumstances. And Trump says them without meaning them. And in the case of Charlottesville, pretty much walked it back within about 12 hours. In the case of January 6th, and I think we're going to learn more, he was uh, placed in front of a video camera and told to make a message telling the rioters to desist. And they had to do three or four takes because he really didn't want to do it. And uh, the one they finally settled on even that one was just outrageous. I love you. You know, this, you're, you're very special, he's saying to the people who are destroying the seat of democracy in America. Um, anyway, uh, so those parallels are there. Um, and the other thing is that um, though there's been a lot of revisionism about the Charlottesville thing, and if you talk to certain people on the right, they will, they will claim that it's an unfair slam on Trump to say that he didn't condemn uh, the neo-Nazis. It's not an unfair slam. He said there were good people on both sides, which is just false. (laughs) And um, in any event, 
Back in 2016, when he was first running, he had a, a conversation with Jake Tapper on CNN during the primaries, in which Tapper pointedly, again and again, asked him to renounce the support of the KKK and David Duke. And Trump claimed not to know who Duke was. And he was clearly unwilling to disavow uh, their support. In fact, at one point, he, I think he even said, I disavow, okay? Uh, being careful not to say I, who he was disavowing, you know? And, uh, and so, yeah, the, um, the sympathy that he had for the fascists and the radical right was front and center. The other thing that's striking about it in the new Woodward and Costa book, there's a description of Trump's conversation with Paul Ryan. And he says, you know, those are my people talking about what at the time they were calling the alt-right and his militia groups and, and others. How unusual, because there's the racial aspect of it, and then there's this political violence that's breaking out on the streets. I mean, how unusual in American history is it for a president to see something like that and see that as part of his base? It's certainly unprecedented in our lifetimes. Um it, you know, I guess you, you can go back to certain presidents like Andrew Johnson, who was comfortable with it, James Buchanan, many before that. But uh, in our time, no. And, and, you know, one of the things, again, we were talking earlier about how disorienting it was as a, a former Republican to, to see this. Look, um, many times... In, in recent history, we have seen Republican leaders um, have no difficulty in drawing very important distinctions between legitimate groups and illegitimate ones. Uh, George H.W. Bush uh, had no trouble saying that, that D David Duke was, uh, you know, unworthy of any decent person's support. He was a racist and a xenophobe and, you know, beyond the bounds. Uh, because he had gotten the Republican nomination for governor in Louisiana. And so, you know, the President of the United States at the time, George H.W. Bush, uh, disavowed him uh, and denounced him even much more recently than that. We saw um, George W. Bush after 9-11. Uh, he was very careful not to stoke anti-Muslim hatred in this country, which obviously would have you know, been a serious problem had he not shown that kind of leadership. He went to a mosque. He talked about Islam being a religion of peace. He posed with imams because he understood that you, as a leader, it's your solemn duty not to stoke the worst instincts of the public. Um, you know, the public has to keep politicians honest, but politicians and leaders have to keep the people honest, too. It's a two-way street. And um, other Republican presidents have had no difficulty um, seeing and understanding those uh, responsibilities and, and living up to them. And, uh, you know, I also remember uh, John McCain in 2008 when a, when a constituent said, you know, that she couldn't vote for Obama because he was a Muslim and an enemy and what, and, and McCain said, no, no, that's not, not true. So that's the sort of thing, that's just the basic, lowest level of, of adherence to democracy that one should expect from a leader. And Trump was such a radical departure from all of that. So it creates a dilemma for the leaders of the Republican Party about what to do. And can you describe, because there is statements and there are tweets and some of them mention Trump and some of them don't after Charlottesville. Can you describe the response 
of the party and how you saw it, whether it was adequate to that moment and, and how important the choices were they made after Charlottesville? It was utterly inadequate, as with so many other hinge moments when a, a unified and, and full-throated denunciation by people in authority could have made a difference. They, they flinched, and they did not do the right thing, and therefore, once more, it became acceptable what Trump had done. And it, it's an overused term in our time, but it expanded the Overton window of what behavior would be acceptable in American politics, and therefore it degraded American politics. There were a couple people, like Senator Flake, Sanford. There's some, there's some in that period, in that fall, who do stand None up. None of whom remained in office. And what choice did the Republicans who were watching that, who were seeing Trump go to Flake's district and, you know, rally against him, who are seeing him tweet against Sanford, what choice are they confronted with when they see that and what do they do? So they would see that somebody like Flake, who criticized Trump, um, would uh, would see their career ended, and they would say, "Well, obviously, um, we can't be in that position." So any particular individual who popped his head out above the foxhole was going to have it shot off. What they never did was all join hands, and that would have been on many occasions, a much better and a winning strategy. And by the way, there were moments during the Trump presidency when Trump backed down. He, he wasn't always uh, unwilling to do so. When he, got, when he was met with force, um, he backed down because like all bullies, he's actually a coward and does, uh, well, it's not just that. But, uh, but when he was met with resistance, he would, uh, he would back down. And unfortunately, um, there was all too little of it. And they never did see that if they acted in concert, they would have a lot more, um, a lot more power. By the end of the year, there's a scene we've used in films before, which is the text ceremony signing in December of 2017, where the leaders of the party, many, many people come to the White House and stand behind Donald Trump and praise him for his role in the tax bill. And what I'm curious about what that display shows, and also... Were those people who were coming up and Paul Ryan saying exquisite presidential leadership and they are praising him? Do those people who are praising him, do they believe it? Why are they saying those things? They're not, they don't believe it for a second. They believe the exact opposite. But they're saying it because they've been well trained by Trump that in order to get anything that they want, they have to praise him. They have to... Um, uh, not just praise him, but be um, obsequious in their praise. There was a video that circulated um, early in the term that showed this absolutely humiliating display on the part of each and every cabinet officer. Uh, they went around the table and they, they tried to outdo one another in this oleaginous praise for what his, you know, the glorious leadership of the dear leader it was almost North Korean style. And so Trump taught them that that was what he expected, and so that's that's what they did. I mean, the funny thing about that video, because I remember seeing it, was that at the time it seemed sort of humorous. It seemed like a reality TV star. You don't think forward to January 6th when you would, so much of what happened in the Trump years was seen in that light. Did we miss things because of that? Did we miss things because of his reality show history? Because we didn't take it seriously. 
because it seemed like a joke or it didn't seem possibly although it's it look there were enough people warning that this was serious and um there was violence at his rallies that he openly encouraged i mean it wasn't a joke um it was it was obviously there were some aspects of it that were that were um humorous but but no i mean the it it it, it reminded you of other sort of um so-called amusing demagogues, you know, Hugo Chavez could put on quite a show and he did. He was on television, you know, once a week down in Venezuela, uh, entertaining. He would sing, he would tell jokes and he would humiliate the people who worked for him. And that didn't make him any less of a menace. He destroyed a country. Um, so, um, so I, yeah, I suppose some people failed to take it seriously, but it was, it, they should have. One of the other things we were seeing that might have been a warning sign was his relationship with dictators, with exchanging love letters with Kim and Putin and his attitude towards democracies. What alarm bells did that set off for you? What should it have set off, especially for, for Republicans in the party, many of them who identified as hawks previously? Yeah. Uh, this was one of the most upsetting aspects of the of the Trump persona and of his term. Uh, was that he is an open and uh, flagrant admirer of the worst people uh, in the world. He showed nothing but contempt for our Democratic allies, most of them, not all of them. He, uh, but, uh, but Angela Merkel um, and, uh, and others, he, he uh, I guess, he, he permanently alienated the Danish uh, Prime Minister, <laughs> by uh, uh, when she rebuffed his uh, offer to buy Greenland. Uh, yeah, normal presidential behavior. In any event, his tropism toward authoritarians was so obvious and so shameless and so embarrassing for the country. Um, to see him saying that he had exchanged love letters with Kim Jong uh, Il, saying that um, he, you know, noticed that. Uh, Kim's um, employees uh, stand to attention when Kim speaks. And he said, I, I, I'd like that from my people. And people say, oh, he's joking. Really? I, I'm, not, I'm not so sure. Well, you know, let's cycle back again to those oleaginous uh, uh, praising moments that he insisted on at cabinet meetings and ask whether that was really a joke or not. Um, but, um, but yeah, his... Um, his attraction to to dictators, um, in fact, he, yeah, he, he I think he called um, Sisi of um, Egypt my favorite dictator. Um, he uh, he was very attracted to the Saudis. It didn't really matter what kind of dictatorship, as long as it was one that gave the uh, the big guy autom you know uh, authoritarian control. He he admired people like that. You know, he used to quote. Directly, you could tell after he had spoken to an authoritarian leader like China's Xi. After he had spoken to one of these people, he would repeat with complete credulousness whatever they had said. So, in the case of Xi, you know, remember how many times he said the Chinese are handling COVID; they've got this under control. Or he would say, when the weather warms up, it's going to go away, which was exactly what Xi was saying. Um, and, and similarly, um, after speaking with Putin, which he did 
any number of times, probably more than we will ever know about, because he made efforts to, um, uh, to eliminate the records of those conversations. But he would um, repeat. So, for example, after one of those conversations, he said that he thought that the people of Crimea really preferred to be under Russia, uh, never really considered themselves Ukrainians. Now, Maybe Trump was saying that because of his vast knowledge of Crimean history, but it's a lot more likely that he was simply repeating exactly what uh, what Putin had told him. So going back to this issue of truth versus falsehood, he was the greatest destroyer of truth that we've ever seen in America. And he himself fell victim to disinformation all the time. He was the greatest consumer of disinformation doled out by, uh, by dictators around the world uh, that we have ever seen. Do you think it had a domestic effect that's important to understand? I mean, when you're watching the Republican Party, do they change their view of authoritarians, of democracy? Does that start to change during this period as they're watching this president? Absolutely. Um, well, for one thing, we could see in polling that um, Republicans became much less hostile to Putin during Trump's tenure. And by the way, Democrats became a lot more hostile. So it's uh, it's interesting to me as an old cold warrior to see that uh, that many Democrats who in the past were a little soft on Russia have now become uh, the opposite. So there's there's that flip side to this as well. And, and similarly, you see that Democratic support, for example, for free trade jumped during the Trump years and support declined on the part of Republicans for free trade because of the leadership. Now, the invasion of Ukraine um, has, has put a... Um, a sudden halt on the uh, improving popularity of Putin, um, even among Republicans. Uh, but uh, but yes, there was leadership matters. You know, the people who said, oh, he was just an entertainer and it didn't really matter that much. You know, it's interesting that they can acknowledge the key role that, for example, Volodymyr Zelensky is playing in Ukraine, the, the incredible importance of good leadership in a moment of crisis. Everybody can see that. But can they then not see the flip side, that poor leadership also is incredibly important and uh, also has severe consequences or important consequences? Let me ask you about a moment that involves you, which was when you go to CPAC and you make some comments about the president that are not received well. Can you describe that and what it said about the changing conservative movement and about the party and about the loyalty to this man? So I, I was trying to make two points. Um, one was um, that in order to maintain your credibility on a subject, you have to be willing to criticize your own side. Um, otherwise, you're a hypocrite. And um, so uh, the panel was supposed to talk about the Me Too movement. And the implicit goal of the panel was to simply criticize Democrats on this matter, which I was happy to do. But I said, you also have to look to our side and see that we have sitting in the White House a credibly accused uh, sexual harasser at the very least, and uh, that the Republican Party had just bestowed its endorsement on a credibly accused child molester in the case of Roy Moore in, uh, in Alabama, endorsed him for Senate. 
And so I, I wanted to point that out, but I also wanted to make the point that CPAC itself um, was violating its own principles by opening its doors to and inviting um, Marion Le Pen, who is the niece of Marine Le Pen, and the faithful uh, believer in her grandfather's philosophy, um, to their conference, which meant that they were moving, this was 2018, that they were moving firmly into the nationalist uh, camp and away from the kind of conservatism that CPAC used to believe in. And the response that you got, did that tell you something about the movement and about the party? Uh, I was not surprised that I was booed. Um, but it's a, So it's a, uh, an illustration of a problem that we're still dealing with and we still have no clear answer on how to address as a society, which is some of the people who booed me, and I particularly remember one woman's face because she was contorted in righteous indignation. Um, she genuinely believed what she had been told um, by her media outlets, that this was all a lie about Roy Moore and about Trump, and that I was presenting her with what she knew to be untrue. Okay? And um, that was the source of her passionate indignation. And the fact is, we still are trying to figure out how do you break through when people are so convinced and they, they get a very skewed version of reality or they get disinformation? And, uh, you know, when you try to do your best to tell the truth, they don't believe you. Now, I did hope that because I had some credibility as a many decades long conservative columnist, that perhaps coming from me would have a little more credibility. But um, and maybe it did with some. Right. We can't know how everybody in the audience reacted. I did get some thumbs up. <laughs> one of the people we're trying to understand is Liz Cheney, who will have one reaction after January 6th, but who, though she doesn't condone Trump's conduct, is somebody who's very critical of the Democrats' handling of the first impeachment. What is the dynamic that's at play in that first impeachment? And how do you end up with a situation where you have every Republican except Mitt Romney yeah, on one side? Um, Looking back, it is possible that um, if the Democrats had been a bit more strategic about the way they um, compiled the committee, uh, if they had invited um, some Republicans uh, on, um, perhaps things would have been different um, uh, as impeachment managers, I mean. This is the first impeachment, first with, impeachment. Um, about Ukraine, yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, but no, at the time and since, I, I really see it as, uh, yes, perhaps Democrats made a few false moves, but mostly I think it was that the party, the, the Republican Party had become so cultish at that point that uh, there was very little. Uh, and plus the issue was one that was very hard for the average voter to get their arms around. There was something about a phone call and weapons and, you know, it wasn't very clear. It wasn't something that could fit on a bumper sticker. Um, and so perhaps that also contributed. But I, I think mostly it was that the Republican Party had become a cult of personality and they were pretty much determined to stick with their leader because the, the conduct was in my judgment, clearly impeachable. Uh, he was attempting to um, 
strong arm, an ally for personal gain and, and, and doing and attempting to corrupt American politics and Ukrainian politics simultaneously. So the, the Ukrainians would launch a fake investigation of Trump's main opponent in 2020. Um, and uh, so both countries would be complicit in a corrupt bargain. The impeachment was supposed to be the check that the founders built into the Constitution on a president. And when you're watching that first impeachment, does it feel like the constitutional system, the constitutional checks are working? Is this a moment revealing weaknesses in it? Well, both impeachments demonstrated the weakness of that tool, uh, that in an age of hyperpolarization, it's a dead letter. It does not work. Um, and especially when you consider the supermajorities that are required for conviction, it isn't effective. Uh, and the threat of it is, frankly, not effective anymore because of what we saw, um, not just in the two Trump impeachments, but in the Clinton impeachment as well, where, again, not a single uh, Democrat voted to impeach the president of his party um, because the polarization had set in even then, though it wasn't nearly as extreme as it has since become. So, um, so there is that. But there are many other ways in which the polarization that the founders, to their credit, did fear, uh, though they didn't quite know how to prevent it. Um, uh, there are other aspects of the whole constitutional order that are also um, not bearing up well under the load of polarization. Um, so the very um, independence of the, of the uh, branches of government um, the Senate was was meant to be a check. Uh, the, the the House of Representatives, those bodies have become absolutely supine and doing the bidding of the president of their own party. They have no institutional um, pride, and and they don't assert their prerogatives at all anymore. Um, so that's another respect in which the design of the Constitution has not been able. To, um, to withstand the pressures of hyperpolarization. So there's a moment Which at the end of it. Which is why we have, to, we have now moves to consider reforms like nonpartisan primaries, which I think would help to uh, cut that Gordian knot. Just to finish the first impeachment, there's this scene where Trump goes and thanks everybody who made his acquittal possible, and he holds up a newspaper that says that he was acquitted. And according to the journalists we've talked to, you know, the president saw that as a moment of being unleashed, of realizing that the checks weren't going to contain him. Can you describe that moment and the responsibility of the people in that room for what would happen over the next year? Well, first of all, um, every single person in that room was responsible for... The, um, I mean, undignified is too weak a word, you know, the really sort of um, um, uncouth at, uh, and gross nature of the, um, you know, preening over this vote, um, and uh, including the attorney general who uh, was sitting in the front row, as I recall. So it was a it was a disgusting display. I think there was profanity used, if memory serves. Um, it was a, a very um, it was a despicable display, and uh, 
the people who who lent their moral authority to it uh, have they have a level of responsibility that they're going to have to live with for the rest of their lives. Everything that happened, the events after uh, the failure to convict in that first impeachment, including Trump's attempt to steal the election. Hi there, welcome back. Welcome back. Let's see what's going on here. Very slow. Right, so yeah. Let's get this podcast party going, man. Thanks for a billion listens. And uh, they keep trying to shut down my podcast. Okay. New episodes. Yeah. I'm listening to PBS. I'm listening to Chump Showdown. One year ago. Mueller has convinced yet another witness to cooperate. The Russia investigation heating up on several fronts. A White House at war. But I say, how do you beat somebody that hasn't done anything wrong? Mona chair an interview. DUI is a very traumatic event here in Arizona. If you're convicted, you're looking at jail time. If you're convicted, there's a great potential that you're going to lose your job. Kevin caught trying to expunge Trump impeachment. I'm Ben Micellis from the Midas Touch Network. MAGA Republican Kevin McCarthy, who is the weakest speaker of the House of Representatives in American history, has been going around and telling journalists that one of the things that he is considering doing is introducing something not actually legal, to expunge the impeachment of Donald Trump. You can't expunge impeachment. There's nothing in the Constitution that allows that to take place. But what Kevin McCarthy stated, and this is what the Washington Post is reporting, he's been saying, quote, I would understand why many members of Congress would want to bring that forward, referring to some sort of expungement of Donald Trump's impeachment. McCarthy said, I understand why individuals want to do it. And that is something we will be looking at, McCarthy said. And one of the things McCarthy also said is that he shares the sympathy for what Donald Trump went through regarding the allegations against him in the first impeachment trial relating to him withholding weapons and extorting Vladimir Zelensky in Ukraine and the second impeachment for leading an insurrection to overthrow our democracy. Kevin McCarthy said, I sympathize with what Donald Trump went through. He endured far too much. Now, in addition to being a weak MAGA Republican, whatever, Kevin McCarthy is just a freaking liar. 
He's a traitor. He's a liar. There's a reason that he's called Cave-In McCarthy, not just Kevin McCarthy. And look, you remember after the January 6th insurrection, there's like three different audio tapes that circulated where Kevin McCarthy said that Donald Trump bears responsibility. And he said that Donald Trump needs to go. And he said that he's going to be calling up Donald Trump. And I've had it with this guy. Yeah, let's play the first clip just so everybody remembers. So after the insurrection, this is what Kevin McCarthy was telling uh, Republicans. I've had it with this guy. Play the first clip. I've had it with this guy. Uh, what he did is unacceptable. Um, nobody can defend that and nobody should defend it. The only discussion I would have with him is that I think this will pass and it would be my recommendation we should be done. Uh, I mean, that would be my take, but I don't think he would take it. Now, in the second clip, Kevin McCarthy says, can't we just take away everyone's Twitter accounts? Let's just take away their accounts. Play this clip of Cave in McCarthy. Play the clip. And there's an issue with Alabama. Barry Moore has said some, some things today, even, that we should look at, honestly. What did Barry say today? All right, so he deleted his personal Twitter account, but Jamie Dupree with the Atlanta Journal um, got screenshots. Um he said about 22 hours ago, wow, we have more arrests for stealing a podium on January 6th than we do for stealing an election on November 3rd. Atlanta, Philadelphia, and Detroit would be places I recommend you start. There's video evidence of these crimes as well. Hashtag election integrity matters. And then um, Moore also made this tweet on Saturday night as the U.S. Capitol Police officer who shot and killed a woman as he tried to get into the lobby. So he tweeted at Marjorie Green and at Nayroll, I understand it was a black police officer that shot the white female veteran. You know, that doesn't fit the narrative. What? Oh, oh man. This is what we're, we have to confront with this. Okay, now here's another clip of Kevin McCarthy after the January 6th insurrection saying Trump bears responsibility. He says he admits to bearing responsibility. I told him that he's responsible. Here is Kevin McCarthy again. Play the clip. Well, let me be very clear to all of you, and I've been very clear to the president. He bears responsibilities for his words and actions. No ifs, ands, or buts. I asked him personally today, does he hold responsibility for what happened? Does he feel bad about what happened? He told me he does have some responsibility for what happened. Um, and he needs to acknowledge that. Well, now, Kevin McCarthy, I mean, Kevin McCarthy, the weakest speaker, MAGA Republicans, they want to introduce something that's going to expunge the impeachments of Donald Trump. Guess what? I'm a lawyer. That doesn't exist. There is no mechanism in the Constitution to do that. But... Look, we're dealing with MAGA Republicans who don't even understand how bills become laws. They pass a bill in the House of Representatives to uh, defund a conspiracy that they created, for example, last week. The conspiracy they created that 87,000 IRS agents are going to knock down your door. So all they want to do is engage in these scare tactics while they pick your pockets. What they don't want is a functioning IRS. There's not 87,000 agents. Over a decade, people who are retiring from the IRS need to be replaced with new individuals, especially as things get more technologically advanced. You need to hire more IT people. 
within the IRS. So over the next decade, 87,000 employees, not 87,000 agents. And in fact, the bill that House of Representatives MAGA Republicans introduced to now defund the IRS to try to cripple the IRS, according to the Congressional Budget Office, would actually add $150 billion to the deficit. So the very first piece of legislation that they introduced in the House of Representatives, which, by the way, is not a law, it's not a law, it has to pass in the Senate and be signed, and be signed by the president. That is how a bill becomes a law. School house rocks. Yet MAGA Republicans are saying, oh, we passed it. The, the IRS is defended. And then what they say about the Congressional Budget Office, which talks about how $150 billion will be added to the deficit, the Republicans say, oh, you don't fake news. We're only going to cite the Congressional Budget Office when it benefits us. And when it doesn't benefit us, we're going to say the Congressional Budget Office doesn't know what they're doing. So now the folks who brought you a fake law, don't know how a bill becomes a law, they're now talking about expungement of an impeachment. Acquiring a business for yourself is both exciting and scary. You have saved and prepared for this moment, and you need to be certain it's your business ownership dream come true and not a business nightmare. The business due diligence consultants at Micro Business Analysts guide entrepreneurs through a successful acquisition for the next stage of their business career. Buying a business can be filled with surprises, unanticipated costs, and risks. Experienced business due diligence consultants at the MBA due diligence process are well organized and thorough. The process assures that you are buying a business that is performing and growing as represented, can be transitioned smoothly, is properly valued to meet cash flow and funding commitments, and assures unexpected deal and legal costs are managed and contained. The MBA team are pioneers in the e-commerce and due diligence space. With them, you get real business ownership experience working directly with business owners in transition. The MBA due diligence team is the industry leader nationwide, performing diligence with hundreds of millions of dollars in deal transaction experience. Contact Micro Business Analysts for the most experienced business due diligence consultants in America. Visit mba-america.com or call 800-604-0116 for a free consultation. Expungement may exist in criminal cases where there are criminal pleas or criminal convictions to remove from a individual who was convicted of the crime or as a crime on the record to remove the conviction so it's off their record. That is what expungement is. There's no such thing as expungement of impeachment. Now, the MAGA Republicans may do because all they engage in is performative BS. What, they'll pass a non-binding resolution to expunge Donald Trump's two impeachments, one where he tried to extort Vladimir Zelensky to help Vladimir Putin, the other because he led the January 6th insurrection. That's what they want to do. They want to show the American people that that's who they are. At the same time, they start railing about the purple M&M and 
make up conspiracy theories about stoves and as they talk about Mr. Potato Head or as they talk about Batman and the Joker. I don't even understand this one. The Joker's pregnant and that that really makes MAGA angry. What are we talking about? What are we talking about? What we're talking about is MAGA Republicans going all in, in a performative way, to demonstrate what a cult they are. Where Trump is weaker and more desperate than ever, as Americans are yearning for normalcy, humanity, centrists, coming together, solving problems, focusing on reducing the cost of health care, making education more accessible, reducing the cost of prescription drug prices, making sure that you can work for a high-paying job, more than a minimum wage, a wage with dignity, improving your working conditions, making sure that when veterans come back from overseas, we treat our veterans with A-plus everything, make sure they get the best health care in the world. Republicans fist bump each other when they block giving veterans health care for exposure to toxic burn pits. We're focused on working with our allies. Vladimir Putin wants to destroy the United States of America. So the fact that MAGA Republicans sympathize with Vladimir Putin and say Putin's great and the, and the Russian army's amazing and we're and our army here is too woke. That's why we don't call these MAGA Republicans conservative. There's nothing that they want to conserve. They want to terminate the Constitution. After January 6th, as recently in the past month, Donald Trump called for terminating the United States Constitution. That's who Kevin McCarthy and the Republicans say they feel sympathy for. So sometimes the simplest explanation is the answer. Yes, they want to terminate our Constitution. They want to destroy our institutions. They want to topple our democracy. They want to support insurrection. And they support Vladimir Putin. Folks, it's just kind of staring us in the face who these MAGA Republicans are. It doesn't start with the C. It starts with a T. Traitors. Traitors. The fascists. You gotta call them out. I'm Ben Micellis from the Midas Touch Network. Hit the subscribe button. We're on our way to 1 million subscribers. Thanks to your incredible support. Also, check us out at patreon.com slash Midas Touch. Got incredible exclusive content at Patreon. You just go to patreon.com slash Midas Touch. But also, it really helps grow this independent media platform, which is so important. So if you can, great. If you can't, no worries. I'm Ben Micellis from the Midas Touch Network. Until next time, folks. At Midas Touch, we are unapologetically pro-democracy, and we demand justice and accountability. That's why we're spreading our message to Convict 45. That's right. Gear up right now with your Convict 45 tees and pins at store.midastouch.com. That's store.midastouch.com. Michael, I am offering you a chance to atone for what you have done. What exactly are you asking me to do? Tread very carefully. If we do this correctly, every single person will get what they deserve.
after the election of 2020, when Donald Trump comes out and says, frankly, I won this election. Can you tell me what you were thinking when you watched that? Was it unexpected? How um, important a moment was that and everything that would follow? The moment when he said, frankly, I won this election, um, was telegraphed many, many times. Um, going back to 2016, he had said that he would not necessarily abide by the outcome of the election. It would depend on who won. And um, throughout the campaign of 2020, he repeatedly said that it cast doubt on the legitimacy of the outcome, cast doubt on absentee ballots, et cetera, mail-in ballots. And um, that night, when he said that he won the election and, and uh, didn't accept the outcome, it should have been a moment where people said, okay, he is now transgressing a norm that is essential to the efficient and, and uh, successful um, democratic process. It's essential that losers of elections recognize and accept that they have lost and congratulate the winner. Um, and uh, his unwillingness to do that was, uh, was a more significant and, and much more dangerous um, traducing of norms than we had seen before. Um, well, than, than some of his others, let's put it that way. And uh, the reaction uh, of Republicans at that point should have been uh, unanimous. The leadership should have rallied around and said, it's over. Uh, we accept the verdict of the people, you know, all of those kinds of traditional uh, norms that, that have been with us forever. Um, and instead, uh, important voices like Mitch McConnell, for example, said that the president should be allowed to exhaust all of his uh, legal remedies. Um, and uh, many others uh, joined the same sort of thing. Some actually joined in questioning the outcome of the election. Uh, but most uh, basically went along with Trump. And I think the iconic quotation of the era was um, somebody told uh, the New York Times or the Washington Post that uh, what harm is there in indulging him? Yeah, this is an anonymous quote uh, from a leading Republican. What harm is there in indulging him? And then we found out. On Junior Scooting, where are the 2024 contenders? And by the end of the week, Ted Cruz, Lindsey Graham go out. How important is that period of time? How important was it that there were Republican senators who were willing to go out and to amplify questions about the election? You cannot overstate the importance um, of those voices. It is, you know, it's reminiscent of the period in 2016 when uh, Trump was clearly the most popular primary candidate for a while, um, but it was a very large field and it took the imprimatur of people like Chris Christie, who had been a two-term governor of a major state, and uh, and people uh, like Senator Jeff Sessions, um, who uh, gave their authority, lent their, their prestige and authority to Trump. And that was a signal to people, uh, to, to voters, that it was okay. And uh, it was a permission structure. And so that's what happened after in those days after the 2020 election, too? Sure. When you had Ted Cruz and Tom Cotton and others also questioning the outcome, 
um, it looked less like uh, a, uh, a cranky or, or um, petulant reaction from Trump and more like there were legitimate questions to be asked. So all these people are asking questions. <laughs> One of Trump's favorite sayings is people are saying. Uh, in this case, his people were saying it. So let's now go back to 2016 because a lot of those same characters are involved in that. There's Ted Cruz and Lindsey Graham, and we'll talk about both of them. But one place we've been thinking about starting is the Iowa caucuses where Ted Cruz wins and Donald Trump is even all back then talking about the election having been rigged. Can you help us understand that moment in the Iowa yep. caucus and what a Ted Cruz would have seen, what he was up against, and, and what the state of play was at that moment? This this could have been um, could have been an epical moment, right? Because Trump, a big part of his brand was that he was not going to lose; that, that he was a winner, and uh, he did lose Iowa, um, and. Uh, and he immediately said it was rigged. And of course, if you look at Donald Trump's history, whenever he doesn't get something that he wants, he denounces it as being fixed. So he did that when he didn't win any awards. I mean, he did it you know, throughout his life. It's always the same story um, that, uh, that the game is rigged if he does anything but win. And, uh, and so, you know, he... Uh, he, he trotted that out in Iowa, but that's been memory hold. People don't remember uh, that he accused the Republican caucus in Iowa of being rigged against him uh, because he lost. And then miraculously, the uh, Republican primary in New Hampshire was somehow unrigged. And if we were paying attention at the time, if we were watching the history from the Emmy Awards to what he had been saying in the run-up, what should we have noticed? In that moment we should have noticed that this man has a disordered personality and that he has certain fixed ideas about the way the world works um, and that he is perhaps the most solipsistic individual that we've ever seen on the national stage in american history um, but for some reason uh, he was popular with the voters and or with a subset of voters and uh, at key junctures, Republican officials who knew better decided to humor him or humor them, humor the voters who liked him, uh, rather than confront him. And uh, to be fair, some who did confront him did not live to tell the tale politically. And how would you describe Ted Cruz at that moment and who he was? Because we're going to follow his trajectory, but he was appealing to evangelicals. He'd been a solicitor general and a lawyer and a constitutional conservative. Who was the Ted Cruz of 2016? So the Ted Cruz of 2016 was a candidate who believed he had his fingers on the pulse of the Republican base voter. He thought that the idea was to out-conservative every other potential candidate and show that he was the truest, bluest conservative um, the way he attempted to sideline Marco Rubio, for example, was by suggesting that Rubio was weak on illegal immigration, uh, which later morphed into just weak on immigration, period. But at the time, they were still saying that they were only opposed to illegal immigration. Um, and so that was Cruz's insight, was that you had to be the most conservative candidate. And he also... Um, uh, 
sort of styled himself a constitutional conservative. He, he advertised the fact that he had memorized the entire constitution and could recite it from memory. Um, and so he thought that was uh, the way to the hearts of voters. Um, when he saw the appeal of Donald Trump, he made the calculation that he just had to, um, you know, swim along in, in Trump's wake until Trump self-destructed. And then uh, having never criticized Trump, he would inherit all of Trump's voters. And that was the bargain. One of the other ones in that period that's quite striking when you go back and look at what he was saying was Lindsey Graham. What was Lindsey Graham's role? And I mean, and was he articulating some of the same concerns that you were articulating at that time? Lindsey Graham was concerned about Trump's unfitness for office and did mention it, um, as pretty much everybody did at some stage of the game. It's just a question of when they stopped saying it, uh, as almost all did. Um, but in 2016, Graham was running as the um, neocon or the, or the um, you know, tough on uh, national defense candidate um, that, that he either, you know, genuinely believed uh, was a lane that could lead to success or he just felt that that part of the party needed a voice and, and he was going to uh, elevate his profile. That was his gambit. Um, and... Uh, at the time, Graham was, um, he was amusing. He had some exchanges with Trump that were, that were kind of funny uh, regarding his cell phone. And I don't remember all the details now. I think Trump revealed his, what was that? That's right. Yeah, he, he revealed his cell phone number. Graham made it into a meme or something and, you know, hit it with, with a golf club or something. I, I, but, uh, you know, all in good fun, I guess. But, um but that was, um, that was Graham, and Graham was known for being forthright and, uh, and telling the truth. I do remember him saying that Trump was, uh, was completely ill-suited and unfit to be president. And uh, then he, of course, became a, an obedient poodle later. <laughs> and when you were talking, presumably, to Republicans and to Republican leaders and to Republicans in the establishment, did they have concerns about what we would see after January 6th? Were they worried he was going to lose, or were they worried that he was a real threat to the institutions? What was the feeling inside the party at that point? I would draw a huge distinction between 2016 and 2020. Uh, in 2016, I mean, there were countless Republicans who were very, very nervous about uh, what a Trump presidency would mean for the country and for the party. Um, it turned out they cared a lot more about the party than they did about the country, but uh, there was a lot of concern. By 2020, many of them were perfectly okay um, with a, a second Trump term. Uh, and if you raised these matters of his unfitness, they would say, oh, you know, that's true. I, we don't like his manners either, as if it were only a matter of manners. Um, but, uh, but the left has gone crazy, they would say. And so this is, he's the only horse we can ride. There was a description of Trump at the time, 2016, that he was unconventional, that he was a rule breaker, an entertainer. But there was also other things. There was 
violence at the rallies, which he seemed to encourage. There was uh, talk about governments and institutions. Can you describe what he was offering? And did people misunderstand Trump when they were describing him, when, when they were looking at what he was doing and this, you know, this showman he was often described as? So one of the things that amazed me as somebody who had been a conservative for decades uh, was the willingness of so-called conservatives to embrace someone whose themes were the opposite of conservatism. It was burn it all down, which is uh, about the least conservative sentiment you can possibly have. I mean, conservatives are usually about organic, gradual change, if they're even for change at all. Um, and uh, so, so that was one. Another theme that they were apparently comfortable with was I alone can fix it. Uh, Again, utterly, utterly antithetical to the conservative view that you don't put all the power into the hands of one person, that uh, you have to have checks and balances, that you have to be wary of power, especially concentrated power. And, And so for those reasons, among many others, it was just head spinning to watch conservatives say, uh, to to watch them accept all of this and then dismiss objections as merely a matter of of style, or or that he was uncouth or so on. Uh, Whereas, you know, no, they were substantive problems going to the heart of what conservatism was about. Why do you think they rejected them or they saw it as, as a question of style? It's a very hard question to answer. Um, Either they never really believed in the things they said they believed, or they persuaded themselves that it was really true that if Democrats took power, it would be, as as one person famously put it in 2016, the Flight 93 election. That it would be the end of democracy as we have known it, and uh, I suppose we would all um, be wearing little Mao uniforms and have to go to camps. Uh, if Hillary Clinton were elected. A lot of people say about Donald Trump that he's not ideological or he's ideologically flexible. I mean, he's not a conservative or a liberal, and he doesn't have the strong views. When, when you go back and look at the speech you just mentioned, that I alone can fix this, I mean, was he offering something? Was he offering himself as a strong man? Was he offering something that was unusual in American politics? Oh, throughout the 2016 campaign, he gave many, many signals of authoritarian tendencies. Uh, there was the I alone can fix it comment. Uh, there was the remark made in a debate that he would order the military to commit war crimes. And when it was objected that this is illegal, he said, don't worry, they'll, they'll obey me. Uh, and um, again, this got very little pushback from Republicans. Um, he suggested that he would limit the freedom of the press. Uh, you know, a lot of this was he was talking through his hat, but nevertheless, it was uh, the sort of thing that, that should have received uh, a very, very stern rebuke, nothing. Um, it, you know, there were, there were just many examples of him being willing to, um, oh, just the very suggestion that he would use the Justice Department to uh, prosecute his political opponents. Just bedrock principle of our democratic republic that we don't do that and that once you head down that path uh, you're getting into banana republic territory 
So there were many, many signals throughout 2016 that this was not just a showman, uh, not just somebody who, um, who was uh, an entertainer, but no, somebody who had definite authoritarian sympathies. And by the way, even going back further, previous to his candidacy, uh, he had made statements uh, regarding, for example, what happened in Tiananmen Square, where he basically praised the communist authoritarian government in China for its crackdowns. Um, he, he said at first it seemed that they might not be able to handle it, but then they handled it with strength. His constant um, invocations of strength as opposed to, um, as opposed to democratic values, as opposed to persuasion, as opposed to winning legitimate victories, um, that's, that has a vaguely fascistic smell to it. Let me ask you, when you are seeing these things that you're describing now, you're seeing them in real time, you're writing about them in real time in 2016. Is it frustrating as a conservative trying to sound an alarm? What is that like? It was vertigo inducing uh, <laughs> because it showed me that either I had gone crazy or everybody else had gone crazy. I didn't know what world I was living in. It felt really Alice in Wonderland-esque. Um, the things I thought were solid were not, and uh, it was very disorienting. Of course, there's the comments about <laughs> his wife. There's the conspiracy theory about his dad. There's calling him, you know, lying Ted. Can you describe what Ted Cruz would have seen, experienced firsthand about who Donald Trump was? At some point in the primary season when Cruz recognized that he was not going to be able to defeat Trump, um, he went out to the cameras and he, and he said, if you want to know what I really think of him, I'm going to tell you. And he was about as blunt as he could be, that he was a pathological liar. Uh, and, uh, and, and he said a number of other choice words about him. So we know at that moment the mask slipped and he was honest um, about Trump. But Ted Cruz is incredibly flexible and he has, it seems to me, one lodestar, and that's his own ambition, to which he's willing to sacrifice pretty much every other principle. The greatest betrayal of all is not even so much about Republican principles, about I thought we were for small government, or I thought we were for, you know, pluralism. Uh, the greatest betrayal on the part of Republican leaders was the betrayal of truth itself, because without uh, without a common set of facts and a common understanding of what we're dealing with, self-government becomes very difficult, if not impossible. And Cruz and Cotton and even prestigious publications like the Wall Street Journal editorial board, which prided itself on its occasional criticisms of Trump, nevertheless failed to draw a bright line and say, this level of deception is corrupting our country. It is corroding people's confidence in the electoral process and in democracy itself. And as such, it represents a profound threat. And they never did that. Uh, well, they did it only in the case of the journal. They did it episodically. In the case of many, many conservative and Republican uh, elected officials, they hardly did it at all, which meant they lent their prestige and their authority to it and in so doing, um, 
they they really betrayed the country. And do you think that was was that happening in 2016, or is yeah. that something that plays out over the? Oh no, it was happening in 2016. It was happening with the early endorsers like Sessions and uh, and Christie, uh, and then it was happening uh, when one after another uh, leading Republicans got in line, and um, you know, right through the convention, I mean, Reince Priebus. Uh, leader at the time of the Republican Party, uh, the RNC, uh, he also, you know, failed to um, to make a point of it. So, so the, the the collapse was pretty well total. And how important was Mike Pence in that? In critical in Trump eventually becoming yeah, president? Because again, Mike Pence. All right. So unlike Lindsey Graham or or Ted Cruz, who had um, different. Uh, uh, parts of the base that they were appealing to. So Ted Cruz was kind of the legal eagle, federalist society, uh, lawyer, conservative, and uh, Lindsey Graham was the foreign policy hawk. Mike Pence's claim to fame was entirely the evangelical Christian vote. And it was to uh, nail down the support of that constituency that Trump chose him as vice president. And Mike Pence was known to be a Boy Scout. That was what he brought. And he was thought of as being a sincere Christian man who um, had a, a, an ethical compass. For him, in particular, to take that compass and lay it at the feet of, of Donald Trump and bend the knee was just, I, you cannot overstate the importance of that. It was about the most invertebrate action he could have taken, but uh, he, he did that. I mean, it's interesting because what you're saying is, yes, the voters in the primaries are electing Trump and they're pushing him towards the nomination, but that the, the leadership of the party still had a choice as late as the summer of 2016. They always had choices. And by the way, let's not forget that in 2016, um, Trump was getting a plurality maximum of the vote. But the Republican primaries were structured so that they had a winner-take-all system. And when you have 15, 16 candidates, somebody with who only gets 27% of the vote can win the max, you know, can, can take it all, which was what was happening in the early contests. Um, and the party had innumerable opportunities. First of all, there could have been some cooperation among the other candidates the kind of thing, frankly, that the Democrats did in 2020 when several candidates dropped out and threw their support to Biden because they decided that he had the best chance to win and that they were going to cooperate and, and do what was best for the party, not just for themselves. Um, that could have happened in the Republican race in 2016, and it never did. Um, so there, there were many, many opportunities uh, to recognize the danger. Um, I remember when um, Scott Walker uh, left the race and, uh, and, and made a, a statement saying that the party had to block Trump somehow. Uh, otherwise, he, he was going to walk away with it, and, uh, and he was ignored. Um, and uh, in, a, in a move that was very early but that came to be so emblematic of the way many, many Republicans handled this, the governor of Maine gathered together a group of Republicans to hold an emergency meeting 
about how best to thwart Trump. And within about a week, he had slipped. He personally had become pro-Trump. Just, and that was, that turned out to be the model for most Republican leaders. It's amazing. Uh, just one quick thing I wanted to ask you about was that moment with Ted Cruz where he goes to the convention and he says, you know, vote your conscience. Was that a turning point for him and for the party when you watched that happen? As, as I recall, the turning point was not when he was booed on the floor of the convention, but when he then went and addressed the Texas delegation next morning. And, uh, and, and received an earful from them. And I think at that moment he realized his own political career was going to be sunk if he didn't get on the train. And so it was for him a simple, simple decision. You know, the fact that these people who, who talk such a good game about, you know, their principles and the fact that they are unwilling to sacrifice the smallest thing for the sake of their principles, like holding office. I mean, it isn't as if someone like Ted Cruz would be on the street if he weren't collecting his uh, senatorial salary. <laughs> he, he could get a job as a lawyer. He could, uh, he, he could have a very nice life. But for so many of these people, they're not willing to make the smallest uh, sacrifice uh, for the sake of their country, honestly. One of the groups that is voicing concern are the Democrats and the Hillary Clinton campaign and that they see danger in Trump. And she does give a speech. And there's, of course, the famous deplorable comment. Did the Democrats, did Hillary Clinton, did they know how to respond effectively to Donald Trump to what they thought he represented? So the Democrats, um, first of all, um, were a little bit complicit in seeing Trump get the Republican nomination. They were hoping for it, cheering for it because they thought he'd be so easily defeated. And um, so that's one lesson is that, you know, you should never let your partisanship take you to a place where you openly cheer for an anti-democratic authoritarian to be the nominee of one of the two major parties because you think it'll give you a partisan advantage, okay? Maybe they've learned that lesson, I don't know. Um, so that was one thing. The other thing was that, that members of the press um, you know, CNN and others saw Trump as a great moneymaker because he meant, he meant eyeballs. And so they featured him endlessly uh, during the primaries. There would, you know, there would be um, a camera on an empty podium waiting for Trump uh, when he was doing his, uh, his rallies and so forth. Uh, he got disproportionate uh, coverage from the press, uh, again, for their own uh, for their own selfish reasons. So that was, um, that was not ideal. Um, and then for good, some good reasons and some bad reasons, Hillary Clinton was demonized. Uh, I mean, it's never good to demonize anyone, but I mean, she, she had s severe weaknesses as a candidate. Um, and then when you, and then you have to layer on top of that, that she was also the victim of a lot of demonization. And so um, I don't think that she handled it very well. My personal opinion is that she would have been better off taking more advice from her husband, Bill Clinton, who uh, was the last Democrat. I mean, Barack Obama did very well because he brought out such overwhelming numbers of, um, of African-American and people of color uh, voters. But um, Bill Clinton was really the last Democrat who understood 
how to appeal to the white non-college educated voters. And unfortunately, um, Mrs. Clinton didn't, didn't take his advice on where to campaign and uh, I think wound up losing narrowly in places like Wisconsin and Michigan that she could have won. And with, with comment like the, the plurals, I mean, we're both sides feeding an us versus them polarization. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, you know, it, we currently live in an era when the whole idea of coalition building is pretty much discredited, and it shouldn't be. But the fact is, both parties, rather than trying to expand their coalition and, and reach out to voters who are in the middle, um, have been doubling down on their own extremes and thinking, well, it's all about turnout. and We just have to get our people out. And if we do that, we get it all. And, um, and they are both, um, first of all, they're missing opportunities um, that are out there. I mean, I think the Biden victory, for example, shows that there were a lot of middle of the road uh, voters, even significant numbers of Republicans who were willing to vote for a Democrat um, and give him a chance. But when the parties, as they so frequently both do, um, play to their own extremes, it further polarizes the country and hurts the parties themselves. Trump comes in in 2017, first joint address, and they say, is he going to be presidential? And the Republicans are sitting there. Um, one of them is Mitch McConnell, who we're interested in. And what do they think that they have in Trump? What do they think they can do with them? How dangerous do they think they is? How much of a benefit to them? How did they understand the deal with this president that was coming in at that early stage of the presidency? Well, I, it depends on who you're talking about. I think in the case of some, it was um, every minute of every day amounted to looking nervously at their phones to see what was the latest outrage and what they were going to have to avoid the press in the halls of Congress about, saying, I didn't see it. I, I don't know anything about it. That was the case with many elected Republicans. Um, there were others who um, thought, a colleague of mine calls this, the Franz von Papen uh, strategy, who was the German uh, uh, official who thought that Hitler could be handled, right? That, yeah, you know, he's popular. We will we, handle him. Well, similarly, some, some uh, Republicans thought, all right, you know, Trump is in the presidency. He can you know, tweet and get on TV, we'll do the work and we'll send him things and he'll sign them. Uh, that was the initial very optimistic outlook um, from people. I, I, I'm not going to put words in anybody's mouth, but I do think the leadership thought slash hoped that that would be the way things rolled out. And for Mitch McConnell, what do you think he was hoping for out of a Trump presidency? Judges. Uh, above all, judges. He was willing to do pretty much whatever he needed to do to get more judges confirmed, especially Supreme Court justices, as we saw with his uh, declining to fill the seat uh, that uh, was vacated, that, well, it became open because of the death of Scalia. And he's pretty well known, and certainly after January 6th, that he had his concerns about Trump and that he was not a huge fan of him. Well, what does Trump get out of him during those years? What does he do to enable the Trump presidency? Well, to the degree that there was anything accomplished in the Trump years, it was uh, due to uh, Republican spade work that had been done before Trump ever got there, for example, on the tax cut, 
um, bill uh, that was after Trump finished screwing around with it and 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 blowing it, they managed to get passed. So that was that was one thing. To the degree that Trump involved himself in legislation, he tended to sabotage it. So, for example, the Republicans had been promising and and running on repealing and replacing Obamacare for 11 years or whatever it was. And um, they might have been able to do it, except that Trump kept bigfooting the, the process and, um, and, and screwing things up when there was an actual opportunity to really get some kind of reform. And uh, he kept switching the guidelines. He kept changing his mind about what he would accept or not accept. And uh, it made doing business in the usual way impossible. Um, there was even a point when the Republicans were in charge of the presidency, the Senate, and the House when there was actual, there were warnings of a government shutdown fight, uh, which is um, preposterous, but that was the, the state of things. But for McConnell, who believes, I guess, that power justifies everything, um, the important thing was that it was a Republican, you know, somebody with an R after his name, and however distasteful McConnell may have found it, um, it meant that Republicans were in charge of nominating and confirming judges, which was his highest priority. So Lindsey Graham maintains his opposition to Trump all the way through the election, does not vote for him, but by the first year of Donald Trump's presidency says, I'm all in on the Donald Trump presidency and becomes the self-styled, self-described Trump whisperer. When you see that transformation, what does that tell you about him? How important is that? I don't want to engage in armchair psychoanalysis, um, but um, the interpretation that Lindsey Graham is the kind of person who is made to be second banana does present itself, um, that that's where, that's the role in which he is most comfortable. Um, he did that for many years with John McCain, and then I guess decided that that he could, he could sort of slip into that remora fish role uh, with the next big whale who came along, namely Donald Trump. And, uh, but other than that, I don't have an explanation except that, as with so many Republicans and conservatives in the wider intellectual world who made their peace with Trump, it was simply fear of missing out. It was the sense that, look, this is what it is. I'm either going to be part of it and have at least some influence. And I know what they would tell themselves because they would explain it to you. They would say, um, look, I, I know this is not ideal. But wouldn't you rather have him hearing from me than hearing from Marjorie Taylor Greene or, you know, Jason Miller or whatever? So that there was always someone worse who was the false alternative that they would present and say, so therefore, I have to do this, always forgetting that or not addressing the problem that every time a major figure did that, they lent him their credibility, and they squandered it. What warnings were there, especially looking back from knowing what would happen in January 6th, what warnings were there in how Trump responded to Charlottesville? So some of the parallels are pretty exact in the sense that you had um, staff members putting words in front of Trump and telling him, this is what you have to say 
to be a credible president in these circumstances. And Trump says them without meaning them. And in the case of Charlottesville, pretty much walked it back within about 12 hours. Um, in the case of January 6th, and I think we're going to learn more, he was uh, placed in front of a video camera and told to make a message telling the rioters to desist. And they had to do three or four takes because he really didn't want to do it. And uh, they, the one they finally settled on, even that one was just outrageous. I love you. You know, this, you're, you're very special, he's saying to the people who are destroying the seat of democracy in America. Um, anyway, uh, so those parallels are there. Um, and the other thing is that um, though there's been a lot of revisionism about the Charlottesville thing, and if you talk to certain people on the right, they will, they will claim that it's an unfair slam on Trump to say that he didn't condemn uh, the neo-Nazis. Uh, it's not an unfair slam. He said there were good people on both sides, which is just false. <laughs> and um, in any event, back in 2016, when he was first running, he had a, a conversation with Jake Tapper on CNN during the primaries, in which Tapper pointedly, again and again, asked him to renounce the support of the KKK and David Duke. And Trump claimed not to know who Duke was. And he was clearly unwilling to disavow uh, their support. In fact, at one point, he, I think he even said, I disavow, okay? Uh, being careful not to say I, who he was disavowing, you know? And, uh, and so, yeah, the, um, the sympathy that he had for the fascists and the radical right was front and center. The other thing that's striking about it in the new Woodward and Costa book, there's a description of Trump's conversation with Paul Ryan, and he says, you know, those are my people. It's talking about what at the time they were calling the alt-right and these militia groups and, and others. How unusual, because there's the racial aspect of it, and then there's this political violence that's breaking out on the streets. I mean, how unusual in American history is it for a president to see something like that and see that as part of his base? It's certainly unprecedented in our lifetimes. Um, it, you know, I guess you, you can go back to certain presidents like Andrew Johnson, who was comfortable with it, James Buchanan, many before that. But uh, in our time, no. And, and, you know, one of the things, again, we were talking earlier about how disorienting it was as a, a former Republican to, to see this. Look, um, many times in, in recent history, we have seen Republican leaders um, have no difficulty in drawing very important distinctions between legitimate groups and illegitimate ones. Uh, George H.W. Bush uh, had no trouble saying that, that, that David Duke was, uh, you know, unworthy of any decent person's support. He was a racist and a xenophobe, you know, beyond the bounds, uh, because he had gotten the Republican nomination for governor of Louisiana. And so, you know, the President of the United States at the time, George H.W. Bush uh, disavowed him uh, and denounced him even much more recently than that. We saw um, George W. Bush after 9-11. Uh, he was very careful not to stoke anti-Muslim hatred in this country, which obviously would have 
you know, been a serious problem had he not shown that kind of leadership. He went to a mosque. He talked about Islam being a religion of peace. He posed with imams because he understood that you, as a leader, it's your solemn duty not to stoke the worst instincts of the public. Um, you know, the public has to keep politicians honest, but politicians and leaders have to keep the people honest, too. It's a two-way street. And um, other Republican presidents have had no difficulty um, seeing and understanding those uh, responsibilities and, and living up to them. And, uh, you know, I also remember uh, John McCain in 2008 when a, when a constituent said, you know, that she couldn't vote for Obama because... He was a Muslim and an enemy, and what? And and McCain said, "No, no, that's not not true." So that's the sort of thing. That's just the basic, lowest level of of adherence to democracy that one should expect from a leader. And Trump was such a radical departure from all of that. So it creates a dilemma for the leaders of the Republican Party about what to do. And can you describe? Because there is statements, and there are tweets, and some of them mention Trump, and some of them don't, after Charlottesville. Can you describe the response of the party and how you saw it, whether it was adequate to that moment, and, and how important the choices were they made after Charlottesville? It was utterly inadequate, as with so many other hinge moments, when a, a unified and, and full-throated denunciation by people in authority could have made a difference, they, they flinched, and they did not do the right thing. And therefore, once more, it became acceptable what Trump had done. And it, it's an overused term in our time, but it expanded the Overton window of what behavior would be acceptable in American politics, and therefore it degraded American politics. There were a couple people, like Senator Flake, Sanford. There's some. There's some in that period in that fall who do stand None up. None of whom remained in office. And what choice did the Republicans who were watching that, who were seeing Trump go to Flake's district and you know rally against him, who were seeing him tweet against Sanford, what choice are they confronted with when they see that, and what do they do? So they would see that somebody like Flake, who criticized Trump, um, would uh, would see their career ended, and they would say, well, obviously. Um, we can't be in that position. So any particular individual who popped his head out above the foxhole was going to have it shot off. What they never did was all join hands. And that would have been, on many occasions, a much better and a winning strategy. And by the way, there were moments during the Trump presidency when Trump backed down. He, he wasn't always uh, unwilling to do so. When he, got, when he was met with force... Um, he backed down because, like all bullies, he's actually a coward and does, uh, well, it's not just that. But, uh, but when he was met with resistance, he would, uh, he would back down. And unfortunately, um, there was all too little of it. And they never did see that if they acted in concert, they would have a lot more, uh, a lot more power. By the end of the year, there's a scene we've used in films before, which is the text ceremony signing in December of 2017, where the leaders of the party, many, many people come to the White House and stand behind Donald Trump and praise him for his role in the tax bill. And what I'm curious about what that display shows, and also 
were there people who were coming up and Paul Ryan saying exquisite presidential leadership and they are praising him? Do those people who are praising him, do they believe it? Why are they saying those things? They're not, they don't believe it for a second. They believe the exact opposite. But they're saying it because they've been well trained by 